Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. Welcome to the Nick at Night Show. Before I get started, I want to make sure I get all the housekeeping done. So the numbers to reach us tonight are 343-700-4390-4390-844-562-4766. You can also reach me by sending a, 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 me a little bit Try that again. You can send me a note to um, nick at night at latenightcouncil.com. Or you can even send me a a quick little message on Facebook if you're a member of my Facebook family or group. We call them Nick's Nights. So you can certainly join that if you're not already a member because that comes with all kinds of perks and benefits. Someday I'll figure out what they are. Anyway, you're certainly welcome to join us at the round table. Um, With that said, I want to let you know that I have, as a matter of fact, he's on hold right now. I'm going to bring him on in just a second. But Mike Patton is my guest for the first uh, little while tonight. Uh, I'm not sure how much time he has for us, but we'll take whatever he's got um, because it's always a, a, a real pleasure talking to Mike. And he is a, a, a very astute political observer, I guess. is probably the best way to describe Mike. And the reason I have him on is because we have another case of malfeasance, nefariousness, and, dare I say, scandal in the PC Party of Ontario in the latest uh, Riding Association meeting. Now... I've been doing a lot of reading on it today and listening and, and, you know, some of the stuff that went on, I'm not going to steal Mike's thunder. I want him to explain it to you in a logical, sequential order and and help him kind of set the table. But believe me, this is serious. This kind of stuff is stuff that is, it absolutely undermines our democracy. This stuff is banana republic stuff. All right, with that said, I'm not going to keep him on holding longer. Let me bring him on. Let's just click that little button. Wait for the line to go. There he is. Hello, Mike. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Oh, if I was any better, I'd be out under the apple tree looking for the bent penny. You know, astute and banana republic all in one introduction, I've never that's never been attributed to me before. I didn't say you were in a banana republic. I said that, never mind. I'm, I'm too busy digging a hole. I'm going to quit while I'm behind. Right. Well, it's, you know, not to cast dispersions on banana republics. Right. We wouldn't want to do that. Oh, God, no. (laughs) No. So if I could get you to just take a moment and kind of lay out, uh, because I think you're probably as familiar as anybody else with with what what went on. 
in some kind of sequential order, some of the things at least that caused you some concern, shall we put it that way? Right. So we're talking about the uh, the Ottawa West Nepean, uh Ontario PC nomination, yeah. and that's my home riding. I'm a, I'm a member of the party in that riding, and um, two uh, very credible candidates, Carmen McGregor and uh, Jeremy Roberts, were running were running for the nomination there. So uh, Saturday was nomination day, so they they gave their little speeches. And the polls opened, and it, it came my turn to to vote. And and you know I've been involved in a lot of nomination meetings, and I've I've voted in in a lot, and and in general elections and so on. And the first thing that I noticed is there's the desk where you go and you pre- present your credentials. So I go up to the desk, you know, and there's one that's marked P to uh, S or whatever the, the you know because they break it up by alphabetical order. Yeah, that's order. right. They break it up. And, and, and so, so everybody's not just going to the, in one line. There's there's different lines depending on your alphabet, uh, your, for your the the first initial of your last name. So that they only have part of the list there. So I, I go up to the, the appropriate desk and, and they find my name and I present my driver's license. And yes, you know that all's in order. They cross my name off the list. They hand me a ballot, and I go behind the the desk to uh, a little. You know, there's a there's a table with a little sort of cardboard cover so you right, can mark your screen, ballot. Yeah. And, and the the first, yeah, a little screen, and the first thing I noticed that I thought was odd was then uh, I deposited my ballot in the ballot box, which was situated behind the returning officers, so they couldn't see it. And I thought, that's that's kind of strange. That's unusual. I, I, that's not how I would do it. I would normally keep it in line of sight. And didn't think anything more of it, and, and went back and, and spent some time visiting with people, and I wanted to wait until the uh, the ballots were counted. So shortly thereafter, the, the voting was closed, the ballots were being counted, and my, my wife and I hung around for about an hour, and uh, we had hockey tickets uh, for, for 3 o'clock, so we could, only, we could only wait around for about an hour and a half, and then we, we found the results hadn't been announced, so we left. Okay. That's fine. And what I heard subsequently, oh, did you want to interrupt at that point? Nope, nope, just keep on going. Okay, so what I heard subsequently, so what happened was, and what the delay was, was, was trying to reconcile the ballots. So um, in, at, in my ballot box, in the P to S or whatever the, the initials were, um, you know, let's say 100 people voted, and when they opened up uh, the ballot box and dumped, dumped them on the table, they'd, first thing they do is they count the ballots to make sure that there's about 100 ballots. So sure enough, in my box, there was uh, 100 people voted, and they had 100 ballots to count. In, in the next, actually, the next table over, um, when the, the returning off, deputy returning officer dumped the ballots out onto the table, the first thing he noticed is, is that you know, all the ballots were pretty much flat or, or folded and maybe opening up a little bit like a butterfly, right. if you can picture that. And that's normal, but as he looked at the table, there was a a bunch of ballots all sort of clumped together in a in a ball, like they'd all been squeezed together. And he looked at that and he thought, that's that's really strange. That's not normal because how would that happen? Because you you insert them one at a time. How would a bunch of them all get clumped together that way? So he he put those over to the side. Uh, the clump, and they proceeded to to count the ballots. And there was, you know, let's say there was a hundred loose ballots, okay, and and checked how many people voted, and about a hundred people voted. And they still, when they flattened out the crumpled ballots, they still had nine or ten 
additional ballots more than people had voted. So, okay, now it's it's very weird. And he took a, look, a closer look at the ballots, and each ballot was initialed um, by one of the party staff. There was two party staff there, and each one had been initialed by one of them. And the initials on these ballots didn't match either of them. Really? So he brought some more people over, and everybody looked at it, and they go, wow, that's really weird. Somebody's clearly inserted those ballots inappropriately. So we're going to disallow those ballots. Clearly, those are not legitimate ballots. Okay, so we're going to disallow them. Stop you there for a second, because not that anybody yeah. needs this, but just for complete and plain understanding here, it those ballots are kind of like an envelope where you fold one side over the other, and it forms a flat little uh, ballot, and you drop it through a slot, right, in the top of the box. Right. So a so, ballot is about half a... the size of a playing card. Okay. So... And it's got two names on it. You make your X and you fold it in half. And right. there it's you go. It's a very simple process. So how do you get a balled-up yeah. group of ballots through that little slot without having to, you know, dramatically you know, ma- mangle the top of the box? Well, it's it's weird. It, it's hard. To, I don't know the answer to that. But it was interesting because the returning officer said as soon as they dumped out the ballots, his eye was immediately drawn to this because, yeah. you know, some of these things are not like the others. And you notice the difference. And he, he noticed that that was really weird. And, and, and so they excluded them out. And uh, on closer examination, everybody pretty much agreed that those were not correct ballots. So they were disqualified. They, all those ballots were disqualified from the, the vote. But his reconciliation, the number of people who voted and the number of ballots he had, normal ballots, matched. So that's, he was pretty certain, and I think I'm pretty certain, that, that that ball of ballots had to have been inappropriately inserted into the box. Before, after, during, who knows. But well, at some point, somebody sense. inserted those ballots. The only way it makes sense, Mike, is they were yeah. dropped in before the box was sealed. Well, it, it's the uh, you know they looked in the box before it was sealed, so that's unlikely. But it's not like who knows. I just come back to how you get a ball through a slot. Well, I don't know. Anyway, I don't okay, know if they I don't were able to force it through and it didn't rip or yeah, who, exactly. whatever. But because Something the box happened. was placed behind the returning officers, they were not watching everybody insert their ballots. So they didn't see this this sort of like wadded up ball go through. Wow. Okay. So that was that. And, and, you know, I know I'm not going to mention who it was, but I know you see what they did at each table. They had senior conservatives from other ridings sort of manning the individual tables. And I know who this individual returning officer was and his colleague. I know them, and I know them to be very credible, serious people. And, you know, it's, you know everybody's a suspect in a, in a, in a conspiracy. But, you know, I, I don't think they were up to anything. And certainly, if you were up to something, you wouldn't draw attention to it. So I don't think they were up to anything, but they certainly noticed right away that it was different and weird. So now we've got pretty clear evidence that somebody's trying to influence the outcome of the vote by inserting ballots into the process, which is, I've never heard of that. Have you ever even heard of that before? No, no. This is Look, it's supposed to be one man, one vote. You walk up, you present your credentials, they give you a ballot, one ballot. Okay, unless you're voting in proxy for somebody else, but that's a whole different process. But when you yeah, vote, and that wasn't done here. That wasn't done in this case. But okay, fine. It, it, so yeah, sometimes you know, there. Yeah. In other words, there are exceptions to the to the rule that allow you to vote in somebody else's stead. 
Okay, but that's that's very yeah. rare, first of all. And as you just pointed out, it didn't happen here. So you walk up, you get your ballot, you you go behind the little screen, you make the mark where nobody else can see where you marked, you fold it in half so yeah. it remains confidential, and you drop it in the ballot. Right. And once you let go of it, there's no right. way of telling which one was yours and which one wasn't. That's the whole point of the that's system. That's the whole – absolutely. And, and, to, and to legitimize the process, what, what's normally done – uh, is is the returning officers at the desk will initial the back of all their ballots so that they can look at it afterwards and say, yes, that's my initial, that's an official ballot. Uh, in this case, it was one person did it for all, of, or two people did it for all the voting. It wasn't done individually by table, but it was clear that there were initials on, on the ballot and they didn't match the approved initials. So some, okay, all right. So there's all kinds, because you can, it's dangerous to speculate, but clearly something is rotten in Denmark here. Somehow. Right. We don't know who did it or why, yeah. uh, but we don't, we do know something was done. And there's a pretty healthy so, okay. list of candidates, or uh, right. suspects so, is the word I'm looking for. Of, of potential conspirators, right? right? So everybody's a suspect. So that, that's fine. So so that's odd enough. So all the other boxes, um, they they reconciled. There was an appropriate number of ballots, and there was no more evidence of clumped up ballots in, in any of the other boxes. And so, okay, so maybe that's a one-off. And then we get to the credentials box. So if you go to the, uh, you know, not that anyone has ever misspelled your last name. Oh no, never. I happened. can't imagine that happening. That's right. Never happened. No. But so you appear, you appear at, at the end line, and you present your credentials, and they go, "Okay, yes, at your address, we have a Nick, you know, Vander Grift, like, and it's just, it's just not spelled the same." Right. Right. So we can't give you a ballot because the name on your driver's license does not match the name on our list. So you go over to the credentials lineup. And this is a very common thing because there's, there's always, there's either issues where, where they'll look and they'll say, well, I don't know if that ID is appropriate or there's a misspelling or what, there's a whole list of things that can cause you to be, to have to go to sort of secondary inspection, which is, so you go to the secondary inspection line and they say, okay, so sir, what's the problem? And you say, my name you know, my, my name on my driver's license doesn't match the name. They've misspelled the name, my name on the voter's list. Mm -hmm. And they look at your driver's license and they look and they look at the address and they go, okay, yeah, that's a typo for sure. Yeah. Right. That's you're, you are who you claim to be. You have every right to vote. There's a mistake made. You know, we will correct the spelling on the voter's list. Here's your ballot. We fill it. They fill out a little form to say, Nick, you know, his name was spelled wrong and he got a ballot, and they put it in a, in a there's a, sort of a little pile of those forms, and then you're given a ballot and you get to vote. Okay. So there's so a that's very clear a, process that's a, for this. Absolutely, very clear process, and, and the people who are manning this desk are not a couple of little old ladies, but, but party staff. So, um, so when they open, open that box and, and go to reconcile, in this box there's 30 more ballots than people who voted. Man, that's so bizarre. how is that possible? That is that you know, and, and I, I've seen this before, right? I've seen this before, never thirty, but I've seen where there's a hundred people voted and there's a hundred and one ballots in the box, and, and you know, you, you you look at it, and normally what the answer is, they got busy and they forgot to cross somebody's name off. Fair enough. 
right? It's a, it's a small administration. Like, it happens. Or in this case, you know, because it's for credentials, they, got, they, they forgot to make up a special form for one person. Okay. Yeah, you know, it happens. Let's, let's not get all bent out of shape over things. But 30 is exceptional. So 30 more ballots were in the box than there's any evidence of people voting. Uh, and um, long, story, long story short in all this, um, the, 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 the difference in the outcome between the winner and the loser, so Carmen McGregor won, Jeremy Roberts lost, and the margin of victory was 15 votes. Now, that's so you had, even with 30, okay, I'm tra- so in other words, this over ballot, this overstuffing of the ballot box, however it happened, had a direct impact on the outcome of this election. Or could have, because you see, part of the problem is now we look at the ballots and we don't know which are the 30 extra. Because well, okay, in this fair box, enough, but let's say it's no... highly likely. Well, it, it, you know, it, certainly it is well within the realm of possibility that the extra ballots made the difference between one candidate winning and the other candidate winning. That's absolutely uh, a, a real possibility. Okay. But it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter. Maybe even, you know, you know, let's say for a moment that the 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 the, the, the extra ballots were split. It doesn't matter. It is such an irregularity. It is such an exceptional irregularity that people somebody was clearly trying to influence the election inappropriately. You know, my opinion is you've got to throw out the result regardless. Yeah, yeah, we don't you know, know for a fact that this oh, We don't just... know for a fact that this changed the outcome. I, it could very well have, um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether it changed the outcome or not. It's just too irregular to let stand. Okay, so let's. Okay, so that was the most obvious glaring. For that mistake alone, this should be thrown out and redone, right? Yeah, because I think there's no argument over that. It's clearly that's clearly a mistake that where there's no gray. Okay, right? Because... It, it's not thirty is not an administrative error. Thirty is especially with the evidence of the crumpled up ballots, there's evidence that somebody was trying to influence the results with extra ballots. And here we have a box with extra ballots. So it's pretty clear to me that something, some, somebody was involved in a nefarious way. Okay. So this sounds like Chicago in the 1930s, vote early, vote often. Um, but right. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Like Ottawa West Nepean has, has a very old voter base, but, but I don't think we're encouraging dead people to vote now. No, well, not physically anyway. Um, right. The, anyway, the, the uh, point I was going to make is that isn't like I was listening to another commentator earlier um, this evening, and they were making the claim that there are, there are other things besides this. This is bad enough. This alone is worth overthrowing throwing this out and doing it again and bringing in fresh scrutineers who are not party officials. You know, do whatever you have to do to make it legitimate. Okay, that is worth it all by itself. But that wasn't limited to that, according to uh, Brian Lilly on the on the show on his show last night. Was talking about how there was one address that had ten names uh, attached to it, and there were eight or ten people supposed to be living in this two bedroom apartment. And then when they called to check it out, I don't know about that. I I am I am aware of a two bedroom apartment on Meadowlands that had fifty six (laughs) occupants. I hope they liked each other. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's that's close. And and again, I don't know that any of those people actually voted. Well, okay? no, and I don't true. know if that you know. 
But it does beg the question. And that's certainly suspicious. Yeah, I was going to say, it does beg the question, why would 56 people, you know, if there's nothing nefarious going on, uh, come from one address? There's no, I know a lot of big families. Okay, and I know people with with nine kids. I know people with eight kids. Heck, I went to school with a family of twenty one. But guess what? I wow. never have run into somebody with fifty six people in the same house. Well, and and, and uh, you know, I cannot say I don't know enough details about that to know that <clears throat> I know that that was that happened, and I don't know if that wasn't a mistake at party headquarters where they did where they messed up with the apartment numbers. You know, there's these things that are suspicious, and I've seen suspicious things before that that turned out to be, on closer examination, be far less suspicious. But it doesn't. There there was a there's a whole number of stories associated with this nomination meeting that leaves you scratching your head. I don't know how many of them are legitimate problems and how many are not, but I do know the excess number of ballots in the ballot boxes is an irrefutable problem. Yeah, it is. And you know what? Uh, when you look at it in totality, um, whether or not the, 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 the 56 people in one address, okay, all right, maybe that's – but when you start piling things one on top of the other, it becomes a real monster. And the party, if right. they want to remain legitimate, has to do something about this. So I'm going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll talk a little bit about that if you, if you, if you can spare me the time. And we'll. Sure, uh, I've got sure. a, a list of questions I want to run past you here and get your input on. So you just stay right okay. there. I have to go over here yep. and I have to hit this button right there. So we'll be right back with Mike Patton af- right after this on the Nick at Night Show. of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. All right, 
Let's get back to our conversation with Mike, but first I'll give you the phone numbers. If you want to call in and ask him any questions, I'm sure he'll be glad to answer them the best he can. 343-700-4390, 844-562-4766. Okay, Mike, um, before the break, of course, we were going over uh, and trying to lay out for people what happened. Now let's talk about, all right, first of all, what's what kind of damage do you think this does because the party's been in a lot of hot water over the last year or so about issues just like this. I mean, you had the, the Jay Tysick situation in Carlton. You had the Oosterhof situation down in, in, uh, in, in the Burlington or Hamilton area, the uh, one up in King Vaughn. There's, th- this isn't unique, and that's part of the problem. This isn't just a one-off. This, these kind of issues, not this issue specifically, but questionable candidate nomination meetings have been popping up all over the place. What kind of damage does this do to the party's credibility? Well, it's it's certainly, you know, things like this, uh, and regardless of who's at fault, it, it certainly disenfranchises members of the party. Why should I bother go and vote if my vote doesn't count? And, and it, it, if you're not going to include my vote in the count, if you're not going to ask my opinion, which is, which is what a nomination meeting is, is to allow, uh, ask the local community their opinion, if you're not going to care about my opinion for the nomination, why, why should I support your candidate during the general election? Why should I vote for them? Why should I organize for them? Why should I donate money? So these sorts of, of practices that, that draw the process into disrepute do cause legitimate problems for the candidates going forward. All right. So that's there's in other words, it's a great program if you want to keep people home. If you want to say, you know, just stay home, we don't need your vote. This is a, about I I can't think of a better way to do that. And remember, the leader of the party does have the ability to appoint candidates if they choose. If, if uh, you know, Daniel Alfredson decided that he wanted to run in Canada for, for Patrick Brown, and Patrick Brown thought that was a fantastic idea, and nobody could touch him as far as being a high-quality candidate and didn't want to go through the whole nomination process, the, the leader can appoint him as the candidate, full stop, with, you know, without uh, any impingement at all. And if somebody else was interested in running for the nomination, that's too bad for them. So that is an outlet, but that's not what's happening here. Um, it, there's a, a sort of a consistent problem with, one for one reason or another, uh, nomination meetings kind of going off the rails. Yeah, it's like you're, you're quite right. Uh, and, and even in the case when it is legitimate, choice and uh, you know is a reasonable choice by the by the leader of the party it's something i kind of liken it to a nuclear hand grenade very powerful don't use it very often because if you do yeah that you have much, to uh, direct appointment by the leader is is within the right but but you don't you're quite right you it's not something you want to overuse because it does irritate local people who, who want to say well if your candidate's so fancy why don't you let them win the nomination the old-fashioned way Right in a in a straight runoff, right? I think there's an argument so it, to it's something you can do, but but there is issues about using it too often. Yes, and that's that's what I mean. And it doesn't seem to be that that message doesn't seem to be getting through. All right, so we've talked a little bit about, but just from a, a, a formal process point of view, what should what should not what would the party do? We'll we'll get to that in a minute. But what should the party do? In light of this well, situation. I think protecting protecting the sanctity of the nomination process 
is super important. So, I, you know, my advice to them, if I was running this, this meeting or if I was advising even the candidate who won, I would, I would sort of reject the process and say, look, this is, we, can't, we can't have a clear winner here because the process was tainted. Let's, let's have a do-over. Let's do it again. As inconvenient as that is for everybody, I think that's probably the, the smartest thing to do um, for, for all concerned. Now, that's what they should do. So that begs the next question. What do you think? And I, I'm not trying to get you to read anybody's mind, but based on, on recent history, what do you think they will do? I, I think they'll let it stand. That's what I think they'll do. Uh, based on what they've done in the past, I, I think they'll just let it stand. And the fact that you know Bob Stanley, who's the executive director of the party, was present for the vote, and uh, you know I, I you know I understand he spoke to the party lawyer. I don't know that for a fact, but but he did. You know, he spoke to everybody at the you know, both candidates. He spoke apparently to the party lawyer, and then made a decision on the spot to allow the vote to stand, as opposed to immediately rejecting it. So I, I think it's very difficult at this point, after the executive director of the party has said that the vote is satisfactory, to then overturn that decision. It, it's something the the executive of the, of the party can do, but we're into another nuclear hand grenade, right? Yep. It, overturning the decision of the executive director of the party is, is something you, you want to do sparingly, if ever. Well, on the other side of the coin, even a nuclear hand grenade has its uses. And when you have a clear-cut case like this, uh, I don't see how you can avoid using it if, as you point out, you want to maintain the sacredness and the sanctity of the voting process and the nomination process as well. So from, yeah. from where I sit, it seems like the logical choice. Uh, on the other hand, well, I, I think there's there's a lot of downside to overturning the result, but I think there's more downside in not overturning the result. Yeah, it's an it's it's a bad situation all the way around. But when faced, yeah. when you're stuck between when, when you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, then you go ahead and do is the way that I would look at it. Right. Because right. either way, you can't win, so you just do the best you can. Um, the other thing That's I want right. to ask is, what do you think the long term ripple effect will be? of this situation if and as you point out i don't think i think you're right i don't think they'll touch it but because of this what do you think the long-term ripple effect will be well i think it's going to be very difficult for carmen mcgregor who won the nomination i think she's got now a credibility problem as to the legitimacy of her election uh and, and again i'm not cat don't feel that i'm casting aspersions on her i don't know Who's responsible for what? I'm not laying blame or pointing fingers. I don't have enough information to do that. Right. But I, I do think that it, it certainly damages her candidacy. And I think there's going to be a lot of people, party members from the from the riding, who will look at this and, and not be willing to, to help her going forward in the general election. I think that's a real problem for her. Now, the, th the other thing that puzzles me about this I mean, in some of the other cases, and I go back to Jay Tysick and different different cases like that, um, <clears throat> uh, Oosterhof and so on, uh, there was a clear difference between the two candidates, but not necessarily in this one. They both had, according to what I've been able to learn, so good, solid conservative creden credentials. They, they, you know, either candidate would have been a fine pick. So if if you're gonna, what, what I can't, here's what I'm trying to do is get my head. Let's let's assume for a moment uh, that whoever decides to do this. 
And I'm not assigning blame because, like you, I don't have enough information to do that. There's clearly something going on, but I don't know who's responsible. But That's whoever right. decided, why would they pick this? I, I just here's what I can't get my head around. You mess with this one when it's you win either way because you get a good candidate out of it. Let them shoot it out. What's the big deal? Why would you do this? Yeah, I I don't understand. I don't understand because you know I I had to make a decision. I'm I'm a voter in this riding, so I chose the candidate and I voted for that candidate. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I think we would have been well represented with either. Uh, I think they have a, a a very strong background and they're both excellent people. So. <clears throat> I don't know why you would do this and <clears throat> risk damaging your candidate of choice. I just don't. Because let's face it, if if Patrick Brown uh, wants to beat Kathleen Wynne, this seems like shooting himself in the foot. Uh, again, it's I'm, like I'm not assigning blame to any one particular person. But if, if he doesn't deal with this right, uh, his inaction damages the, the credibility of the party as much as whoever did this does. Right, and it's difficult because, especially when you take into consideration as well that you know Jeremy Roberts lost, and he has the right to appeal this if he feels that there was there was something going on that was inappropriate. He has chosen not to appeal it. So, so the defeated candidate has chosen not to appeal the result, um, which which just makes it more difficult for the party then to justify overturning the result. No, I can't get into his head either, and but I do wonder why he wouldn't appeal something so egregious and so obvious as this. Well, I I I, I wouldn't begin to speculate, but that yeah. my understanding is he's chosen not to appeal. Yeah. Um, okay. There there has been uh, concerns raised by Eastern Ontario presidents, and I I know it's being looked at. I don't know how you appeal it officially without without the involvement of of the losing candidate. But, you know, I think the executive uh, has the authority to do what they want without prior notice. So uh, I think they, they do have a certain latitude in these things. Yeah, although with the kind of, kind of situation that it, this is, I think people would get it if they said, look, uh, you know what? It's got nothing to do with the quality of the candidates. Something went wrong here, and we're going to do this again. And we're going to, if, if Mr. Uh, I'm sorry, Jeremy's name is slipping, last name is slipping my mind, but if Roberts, Jerry, Mr. Roberts and his opponent want to run this race again, we'll do it. We'll, we'll make sure it's done right. I think a lot of people go good. And, and what, but, but, but Nick, here's, and here's the legitimate question that, that makes things a hundred times more complicated. So what do you do if Mr. Roberts doesn't want to do it again? That does complicate the issue because now you can't run Right. Yeah, yeah, I get well, it. So I, do you do you open it up the nomination again to and say, you know, we will accept a new new candidates to run in the, in this? Like, what do you do? That does that does beg the that does, and I don't have an answer for that. You know, because, no, no. There's I I this is like this is a conundrum for sure. Like this is a, a very difficult, sticky situation, and I'm I'm much I'm much better with black and white. Yeah, me too. Then, you know, this isn't even just gray. This is, we're into technicolor here, going all over the place. All right. Well, we've milked this cow pretty much dry, I think. I don't know where else to yep. go with this conversation. Let me ask you if you've got a, a couple of minutes, because I know that you've been kind of uh, keeping a very close eye on the uh, federal leadership race. Uh, what's your gut feeling about it? How do you see it unfolding? 
Well, it's, you know, I don't know. And I think there are, there are two groups of people, those people who don't know how things are going to turn out and those who are just making stuff up. Because we've never, we've never done a mail-in ballot like this. We've never done a preferential ballot with so many candidates. Here's what I don't know. With a mail-in ballot, if this is a regular, like the way we elected Patrick Brown or Tim Hudak in Ontario, where we had a preferential ballot situation where people went to a voting location on a certain day at a certain time and they voted, we can reasonably anticipate that 50% of the people who signed membership cards will vote in that. But with a mail-in preferential ballot, we have no idea how many people are going to vote. Is it going to be all of them or is it going to be none of them? Well, let me ask you a question. And there's a quarter of a million. There's a quarter of a million people out there who have the, who have the uh, ability to vote in this campaign. Well, let me ask you something. How many are going to vote? And how is, what's going to happen with the, you know, it's, who are their first choices? And more interestingly, what's going to happen with their second and third choices? Well, so this is still very much anybody's game. See, one of the things, as much as uh, some people live for the drama of a, of a um, convention and other people absolutely despise yep. it. But I think the first question I have for you is why do they move away? Because you could do regional because you don't expect people from across the country to come to Ottawa for our PC or any pick any Canadian city. I don't know. It could be Halifax, could be St. John's, Newfoundland. Who cares? Yeah. But when you've got a country as diverse, you have to make allowances for geography. But there's no reason why you couldn't have regional conferences uh, conferences and have them vote even in a one man, one ballot. If you had in major cities, convention centers where people could go to, register to vote, and vote, uh, you know, the one-man, one-ballot style for their top three picks or whatever it is, uh, you yeah. can really simplify this. Why did they move away from that system? I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how we got there. You see, I like, I like the idea as well of runoff elections. I think that would be super interesting. Oh, think, Could you I imagine think. if we have we have 13 candidates now, and if we said, okay, so we're go- so vote, everybody gets one vote, and the top, the bottom five people are going to drop off. So whoever, the five people who get the least number of votes, they're going to drop off, and then we're going to do it again. So the Stanley Cup final. And if we don't have a majority, yeah, gonna we're going to we'll do it a third time. I think that would be super interesting to do as well. And and you know, in Alberta, I, I know when Ralph Klein was elected leader. Uh, they didn't close the membership process. So they had a runoff system with an open membership process. So what ha- the reason Ralph Klein won as leader is, is between the first and second ballot, in the week between the first and second ballot, he went out and sold another 10,000 memberships. <laughs> and that's how he ended up winning. Well, that'll listen. That's, that's uh, you never admitting the race is over until the horse has crossed the line. Um, so that sounds to me like the Stanley Cup playoffs of, of uh, the world of politics. Ray, well, and, and I don't know. I, I'm not a believer that the simplest method is always the best. I, I think it's, there's, there's a couple of different processes. And, and whether this is a good process or not, we have to wait and see. Uh, I'm very interested to see what people do. Do they fill in all 10 spaces that they have the option to fill in? Do they fill in two? Like, what, what happens? We'll only know once this is over and, and look in the rearview mirror to know how, how good a process this was. But it's so new and it's so different. You know, I, I don't, uh, I think uh, counting chickens before they're hatched is probably, probably unwise. 
Well, let me ask you something about the campaign itself, because let's face it, it didn't get a whole ton of uh, media attention, to put it mildly. Right. Let, let, it, yeah. it wasn't. It's not the U.S. primaries by any stretch. Okay, or even right. uh, you know when you have debates between prime ministerial hopefuls, um, it they had they televised them, but I think about four people watched. To be honest, I'm being a little sarcastic, but just you know compared to the number of people in the country who could have watched, there weren't that many. So, right. was there at any point during this campaign? Uh, was there any? What, what's the, let me? Um, trying to ask this question i'm bouncing all over the place but i'm trying to ask you is there any one particular moment that stands out in your mind about this particular campaign kevin o'leary kevin o'leary was was a super interesting um twist to the whole thing because he brought in people into the party who normally would not have had any interest to get involved and, and i think whether you you think kevin o'leary was a dream or a nightmare it, th- there was nothing that engaged people in the process like the presence of Kevin O'Leary. So I, I think, um, you know, I think we, as conservatives, owe him a debt of gratitude for making it interesting. Um, and and maybe it's not interesting in the most appropriate way, but it was interesting nonetheless. And I think that really stands out to me as something that that was uh, unique for this campaign. Well, he certainly seemed to attract the NASCAR crowd. Like half the crowd there wants to watch the race, the other half wants to watch the wreck. Um, you know, just well, people are but, drawn but they to wanted to watch, and characters. that's what was interesting. I'm sorry, I missed that last piece. I said, but they did want to watch. Yeah. And that's what made Kevin O'Leary interesting. Yeah. Whether you were there for the right reason or the wrong reason, you were there. Well, and, and I think that was that was super beneficial. People were, are drawn to larger-than-life uh, uh, personalities. Trump, uh, you know, um, Nigel Farage. I'm just thinking about some of the different people who are out there on the, on the world yeah, stage. Yeah, Rob Ford. Ro- uh, Rob you know, Ford. Rob Doug Ford. Ford. Was, Doug Ford, not so yeah. much, but certainly Rob Ford by a great example. Um, you know, all kinds of people stand out um, uh, who are larger than life, and people get caught up in that. And whether they want to participate because they like the guy or the individual or they can't stand them and want to see them crash and burn, it doesn't really matter. It's like going to this, out to the Palladium to watch the Senators and Leafs. The building's split 50-50, but who cares? You know, the building's full, right. and that's it, all it, that really matters. Yeah, and it makes it exciting. You know, and and maybe you're there because you want to see, you know, the Senators win. Maybe you're there because you want to see the Leafs lose. But it doesn't matter you're there. <laughs> well, my attitude is exactly the opposite, but that's a different story. I'll spare you for that. Yep. So with looking ahead, um, I'll bet you there's a lot of people going to heave a collective sigh on May 28th. I think, yeah, I, and I'll be one of them. I just want to get this over at this point. Yeah, it's been a, it's been long, a long race. Let's get on to the Let's get on to the next the next stage, which is taking on Justin Trudeau, because that's what we're really interested in, right? That's what all all conservatives should be focused on. Yeah, no doubt about it. Once we get past this, and whoever comes out on top, and I've been kind of watching it too. Uh, I'm a Brad Trost supporter myself. If I had to pick somebody, I'd pick him because I like his so social conservative values. But there aren't. I don't think there's a candidate left in the race who wouldn't be a better prime minister than the one we now have now. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's super interesting, and I think um, there, there, what what Brad has done uh, 
in laying out a social conservative agenda is is like nothing we've seen before in Canadian politics. When when is a politician ever stood up in Canada and said, you know what? Let's talk about abortion. You know, let's talk about euthanasia. Let's talk about these things. This is that that's normally considered to be the third rail in Canadian politics that politicians run away from. But it's created a, a conversation where even. Um, even non-social conservative candidates have been very clear that they that they've now acknowledged that yes, you know, social conservatives play a role in the party, and there's there's no reason we can't at the very least hear what they have to say, which is what I think a lot of social conservatives were looking for. Yeah, no doubt about it. They just like any other group, they want to be heard, and I think that Patrick Brown should be sure. listening, and he's uh, I doubt that's going to happen, but uh, that to me, I think has been a highlight of the campaign is to be able to hear social conservative values uh, put put out there in clear and easy to understand language. And while there's a lot of other uh, members who are standing on that platform who might not have been as socially conservative as I would like, it's nice to know that there was a voice out there who is saying the kind of things that me and a lot of millions of other Canadians wanted to hear. Yep, I agree. All right. With that, I am not going to hold you any longer. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. It has always it's always a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me on, and I certainly hope to have you back soon. Anytime. All right. Thanks for the call, Mike. Okay. Bye now. Bye bye. All right. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that call. I Mike is a very bright man, and he certainly has a lot of insight. So I was glad to have him join us as a guest this evening. And if you want to make any comments about what you heard, you can join us at 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. With that, I think it's time to take a quick little break. Uh, We'll play another commercial here, and then when we come back, we'll be diving into some of my more generally themed topics. Some of the stuff on this list tonight, you're not going to believe what people... There's a, uh, a place in the Northwest, I forget if it's in Oregon or Washington... You won't believe the kind of taxes they're trying to levy on people. This That'll come from the please don't give them any ideas file. But uh, we'll get to that shortly. In the meantime, you give this a listen, and we'll be back with more right after this.
Mercy. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Out of Motion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. I got to share this with you. You're not going to believe this. This is just absolutely ridiculous. But you know what? This is <laughs> it's 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 so ridiculous it's funny. This comes from an article out of let's see uh trying to remember the, the Oregon Live online magazine or the uh, Oregonian, sorry, that's the name of the paper it comes from. And I didn't I don't normally pull up news from Oregon, but the headline was bike tax, car tax, gas tax. Lawmakers eye ways to fund transportation upgrades. Remember what I said, don't give them any ideas? This is what I was talking about. Okay, first of all, they're talking about levying all kinds of different taxes just uh, to try to pay for infrastructure. All right? Now, these tax rates sound really reasonable compared to what we pay, but here's what they want to do. They want to increase the statewide gas tax by $0.14 cents, uh, to $0.44. Cents. So obviously it was $0.30 cents before if my math is anything to brag about, increasing vehicle registration fees by $40 to 83 bucks. Now, these are American prices, so keep that in mind. Increasing title fees, which I believe is ownership. That's that little sticker that goes on the back of your plate. Uh, by $40, up to 117 Increasing commercial driver's license fees by 20 bucks up to 80 Establishing a 1% tax on new vehicles and establishing a 1% tax on bicycle sales. And they want to establish a 0.1% statewide payroll tax. All of that to fund infrastructure. Okay? Now, remember, they're on the left coast for a reason. They kind of tilt to the left in their politics. I'm being a little facetious. But anyway, here's the paragraph that just jumped right out at me. I want you to think about the logic that goes into this particular paragraph. And see if you don't come away scratching your head. Listen to this. Lawmakers are also considering a system in which owners of fuel-efficient cars pay more, the word there is more, than other owners to register their vehicles. Increasing numbers of fuel-efficient cars are seen as one reason gas tax revenues have slumped because those vehicles make fewer trips to the pump. Let me read that again. Lawmakers are also considering a system in which owners of fuel-efficient cars pay more than other owners to register their vehicles. Increasing numbers of fuel-efficient cars are seen as one reason gas tax revenues have slumped because those vehicles make fewer trips to the pump. Stop for a second. Now, look, in the world of horse training, there is something called opposition reflex. Okay, if you walk up to a horse and you put your hand on its hip and you lean into it to try to get it to move, there's a very good chance that horse will actually lean back into you. It's like a teenager. Okay, when you say, go clean your room. No, they know they're living in a pigsty, but there's an automatic response. No, 
Okay, go take out the garbage. No, that's called opposition reflex. That's so it, when you apply that lot that kind of thinking to this, if they. <laughs> If they're going to penalize people who drive more fuel-efficient cars, wouldn't the logical opposition reflex to go out and buy a car that's less fuel-efficient? Just because you you don't get penalized for driving one that costs you, you know, that you get more miles per gallon of? How, how does it fly in the face of all the things that these people are trying to do when it comes to saving the planet? I thought the whole point was to reduce emissions. And you're supposed to be rewarded for driving cars that don't use as much fossil fuel and create that nasty carbon dioxide uh, plant food. Oh, I'm sorry, pollution. And yet here, yeah, just uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm missing something here. But the logic here, just you almost pull a muscle trying to figure this out. How in, okay, anyway. I don't get that at all. But that's, and again, this comes, like I said, it's out of Oregon, but I don't want you, we're going to keep this between us because I do not want our present band of bandits down there at Queens Park or God forbid uh, Capitol Hill uh, or Parliament Hill, sorry, getting any ideas from the state of Oregon. We got enough taxes as it is. I want to see the taxes go down, not up. Go fewer in number because we're paying way too much money in taxes as it is. Now, I also forgot, and I and I mean this with all sincerity. I meant to get to this right away, but this I was just blown away by that story. But I must tip my hat to the city of Ottawa. With this recent flooding, I am absolutely impressed to the core at how well this city came together that to help the people along the Ottawa River and in the townships that surround it with their flood with the flood situation. I thought Jim Watson did a great job, the Governor General did a great job, and look, there's no way he was gonna win. Okay, because I'm talking about Justin Trudeau. Even you have to at least he went to the scene and did what he could to help. Okay? Because if you're Justin Trudeau if you don't go, you look like you don't care. If you do go, you look like you're taking advantage of the situation for political reasons. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt in this case. The the, the city and its uh, emergency preparedness crew, I thought, did a great job. Eli Elshantiri has been running his legs off and doing everything he can. And he's not the only one, by the way, but he's the first because his his ward was so heavily affected by it. He has been just going like crazy. So a tip of the hat to the city of Ottawa, a job well done. And believe me, if you know anything about me and my history in this town, generally speaking, the city couldn't run a wheelbarrow. But they certainly knew how to fill sandbags. And they certainly did everything they could. Now, there's an interesting point I want to make. I drove because I'm now now you start now that the flood is starting to recede and people are thinking about what comes next. Okay, the cleanup and all that stuff. But I drove to Sudbury about three weeks ago. And when I got past Deep River, I took to the 17 and went, north, went, went up north that way. When I got past Deep River, I noticed that all the reservoir lakes, the ones that we control the level of, which are a lot of them along the Ottawa River, were pretty much bone dry. I mean, there's a little water in them, don't get me wrong. But they were way down. 
And when I got to Sudbury, I mentioned it. And the, the people up there said, well, we didn't get a whole lot of snow this year. I went, oh, well, okay. But then on further reflection on the drive home, I began to think about that. I said, yeah, that's maybe true, but even if you had had the same amount of snow, you'd had room in your reservoirs and in your watersheds for the extra rain and the snow from the runoff. So this begs the question, what happened once you get past going south deep river and you got into the Algonquin Park watershed, you get into, you know, the rivers and lakes on the other side of the river on the Quebec side. Was What was going on there? I think somebody seriously dropped the ball on this flood control stuff because they have that we've known how to control rivers and floods for decades. This is not new. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers have been doing this for well over 100 years. It's not rocket science. They let the water, they catch the water that comes off and run off and they let it out slowly so you don't have these raging torrents lasting for a few weeks and then nothing left in the watershed. You release the water slowly. If you need to make room for it, you open up the dam in February, you let the water go down so there's room for more water. It's like I said, if I can figure it out, it can't be that difficult. So what happened here? I think if there's an investigation that has to include what happened with the control features on our flood control system here in eastern Ontario and in western Quebec, why was there so much water there? And if they start talking global warming or, you know, uh, well, you know, this is climate change, baloney. Baloney. I don't believe that for a second. I think there's been some gross mismanagement here, and I would love to see an investigation into why that situation was allowed to occur in the first place because the watershed just north of us, granted, they might not have had the snowfall and the spring runoff like we did, but they certainly had room for it. They were ready for it. They just didn't get it. We weren't ready for it, and we did, and a lot of people paid the price. At least that's my humble opinion on that particular topic. Okay. We're going to take us a little break for the top of the hour. And when we get back, we'll have more on the Nick Night Show right after this. So Nick is reloading and taking a much needed break. Not that he needs one, but maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at latenightcouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he can talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold and, and, and you'll be fine.
Now, Nick at Night does not exist without advertisers. So if you want to buy time, you contact either myself, jc at latenightcouncil.com, or you can contact Nick if you're more comfortable with him, and of course I certainly understand that. You can contact Nick at latenightcouncil.com. The ads are like really, really cheap. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna love them. Okay, you're, you're, we've we've made them quite accessible. Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And thanks for tuning in. Now back to Nick at Night. All right, three four three seven zero zero forty three ninety eight four four five six two four seven six six. You can also reach me at Nick at Night at at uh, latenightcouncil dot com. You can send me a note over at Facebook if you'd like, or you can even call. <laughs> what a novel idea! A talk show that allows felt telephone calls. What a great! Why didn't I think of that before? All right, now. You know something there sometimes you run into people in politics that are just I'm sure she's a very nice lady personally. I really do. But there's some people you just want to go, "Will you please just go away?" Well, this is an example of somebody else who fits that bill. I really wish this individual would just return to private life. I just stayed. I don't wish any harm to her. I don't wish any ill will towards her. I just don't want any more. I don't want to see her. I don't want to hear her. I don't want to hear any more nonsense come out of this woman's mouth. Who am I talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. This comes from the website iPolitics. Excuse me. All right. Here we go. The Canadian press has learned that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to name ex-Ontario Cabinet Minister Madeleine Mayur as official languages commissioner. Oh, my God. Please. We don't need official languages commissioner in the first place. But Mayor announced her retirement from political life last June after 13 years as an Ontario MLA for Ottawa Vanier. The longtime liberal held numerous cabinet posts during her career, including Francophone Affairs, Culture, Community Safety and Correctional Services, as well as Attorney General. You know, of all the things, it was this absolute insistence. Uh, anyway, this article short. Let me finish it. Mayur is well known for having participated in the fight to save the Montfort Hospital in Ottawa in the late 1990s. News of her candidacy, candidacy isn't creating unanimity among the opposition with the NDP calling it a partisan appointment. You think? Trudeau did not confirm the nomination when asked about it during question period today, saying only that the government is consulting with opposition parties before appointing a new commissioner in the coming weeks. He she would replace Graham Fraser, whose mandate... Uh, you want to talk about an irritating person. Oh, man, Graham Fraser. Anyway, he she's also known for... A, she has a habit of insisting that all of her interviews and all of her meetings be done in French. Now, look, I got nothing against French people. Half my family's French. Okay? I, there's a... Um, um, one of the in the family tree, there's a family called the Trepaniers, one generation back, and they go all the way back to 1648, I think, in Quebec City. So that family's been here a long time. It's got nothing to do with whether I like French people or I don't like French people. I just don't like having a particular 
mandate shoved down my throat over and over and over again and looked down upon as, like I'm some kind of blithering idiot because I can't speak two languages. I just don't like I don't like that. I didn't like her attitude. I didn't like the way she handled herself. I did not like the way she ran her offices, any of them. And to see her pointed to this, because let's face it, guys, this is a six six figure income. She she'd be north of one hundred and twenty five, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, no sweat, not including the perks and benefits that go with the office. So. Just please go away. Please. And yet, here she is again. So I thought I'd make your night with that little piece of news. All right. Now, the B.C. elections are interesting, to put it mildly. B.C., I didn't realize their legislature was that small. There's, I think, is it 80, 80, 84 seats in the B.C. legislature? Something like that. It's not big, that's for sure. Although Ontario's only 100 and change. All right. British Columbia's election has brought unwelcome doubt for the business sector, given the prospect of an ascendant Green Party influencing policy on pipelines, natural gas exports, hydroelectricity, and other resource projects. Christy Clark's Liberals took 43 seats, two ahead of the NDP, but just shy of the 44 seats needed to think. So it's around 80 is the, is the total. Anyway, so in, as, in other words, the NDP and the Liberals split the, split the uh, seats and the Green have three votes, which makes them, because it's a minority government, makes them kingmaker. Now, this is really, really bad news. Why? Because you've got three left-wing parties. The Green are the most left of the bunch. And that's saying something considering the NDP. So you've got the Liberals, who aren't exactly what I call hardcore conservatives. You've got the NDP, which are, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Right up there with our good friends, the socialists, fascists, and communists. And now you've got the Green, who are even more left-wing than the first two. And they're going to be running that province? If you think B.C. meant bring cash before, it's going to really get expensive in there. And all those the, the um, all the pipelines and all the natural gas projects are now in limbo. It's going to cost that economy the B.C. economy, billions, and certainly it's going to hurt the Canadian economy at a time we cannot afford it. This is very bad news for British Columbia in particular and the country in general. Anyway, so the Trans Mountain Pipeline's in, in danger. You've got a bunch of other stuff. And I'm just looking at this, and you've got to ask yourself, what, why, what is it about the left side of this continent? Why... Is is it the rotation of the Earth? Does the curve of the Earth at that point on the globe make people lean left? Why, like in Alberta, leaning left is not the issue. But if you go down the coast, with the exception of Alaska, you know, B.C., Oregon, Washington, California... All those places, all along the, the, they all are left basically socialist meccas. And I cannot figure out why. What, what is there about socialism that seems to have taken such a deep root in that part of the country or in that part of the continent? Now, having said that, people are allowed to vote any way they want to. 
I just can't imagine that there aren't people out there who, in, in enough numbers, to at least mount some kind of right-wing back, I don't want to say backlash, but just, you know, presence. Because the, 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 I, I think there's a Tory party out there, but it didn't do very well. Didn't win any votes. Certainly, uh, somebody was saying on Facebook tonight that the, the Libertarians um, are the fourth biggest party in the, par- in the province. <laughs> okay. Well, that's about the only place that would be true. But I just don't understand this mindset. Like, So I'm, I'm looking for a little help from you. What is it about? Is it the air? Is, is it just so damp over there? I'm not trying to cast aspersions on our brothers and sisters out in B.C. I'm just trying to get into their head about why they consistently vote left wing. Maybe it's too much rain. I don't know. So you tell me. Help me figure that out because I don't get it. Now, speaking of left wing, I found this article, and I am not a... I, I, I don't think this is serious. It's almost... Okay. When everybody says um, that the media um, has a left-wing bent to it, it's stories like this that give a lot of credence to that. This is a, a Reuters story written by a guy called Philippe Lopez. Now, I'm going to share with you just a little bit because <laughs> when you read this, none of this stuff, only a hardcore lefty could think this way. Okay, and I shouldn't even use the word term lefty. It probably should be a progressive is a better term. Okay, so listen to what he has to say in the opening paragraph or so. Imagine this terrifying political scenario for a moment. It's the eve of the most consequential presidential election in a country's recent history. An even-keeled and reasonable centrist candidate is running against an outlandish hate monger who happens to be chums with Vladimir Putin and whose success in part has relied on mo- has relied on mobilizing a far-right nationalist mob around anti-immigration restrictions. The country, a frequent victim of horrendous terror attacks, also seemingly becomes, also has seemingly become a microcosm of the global issues surrounding xenophobia, the rise of ISIS, the discontent of decentralization, and the rampant hysterical nature of the media, both social and traditional. Concerned citizens are arguing at cafes on Twitter and in their reinforced filter bubbles. And then, just days before the vote, the even-keeled candidate's email is hacked and a devastating trove of information is just sitting there like a juicy steak for WikiLeaks, the media, and everyone else to to devour and then regurgitate. Now listen to the bias in this. If you didn't pick it up, listen to the bias in this. First of all, okay, so you got this even-keeled Marcon, is who he's talking about, obviously. He's talking about the French elections. Marcon, okay, he's not a centrist, he's a left-wing guy, okay? And Le Pen is on the other side of the coin, but she's evil because she's right-wing, okay? Now, so, the way, how does he describe her? An outlandish hate monger. No, she just loves her country and doesn't want to see it torn apart any further. But now you can't do that. Because, why? Who has built his, his success in part on mobilizing a far-right nationalist mob. That is supposed to pass as journalism? And and built it around anti-immigration restrictions. And then, she said, this guy says, within the next sentence or two, has also become... um, 
I'm sorry, the the site of horrendous. Uh, where the heck did it go? A frequent victim of horrendous terror attacks. Uh, <laughs> that's the next sentence. The country, a frequent victim, okay, whose success in part has relied on mobilizing a far-right nationalist mob around anti-immigration restrictions. The country, a frequent victim of horrendous terror attacks, has also seemingly become a microcosm of global issues surrounding xenophobia. Guys, did you ever wonder why people who want the border shut down? You see, it's not xenophobia. It's self-defense. This left-wing crap just drives me around. Okay, let me share with you the next paragraph because it's just as much fun. When a sick simulacrum of this scenario occurred in America, that moderate candidate was doomed. Guess who he's talking about is the moderate candidate. He's talking about, and he mentions her in the next sentence, as Hillary Clinton recently told Christian Annamanpour, her stunning electoral college loss to Donald Trump owed partly to her own campaign errors for sure, but also a kamikaze-like confluence of events such as the influence of James Comey and Russian hackers and the subsequent media circus that unfolded. So it's everybody's fault but hers. Okay, First of all, there's nothing moderate about Hillary Clinton. She was not a moderate centrist party. A person, I'm sorry. She was one of the most dangerous women on the planet. And if you don't think so, ask the ambassador who was killed in Benghazi. I'm sorry. I just, if anybody paints Hillary Clinton as centrist and moderate, then they don't have a grip on reality. Call her anything you want to, but she's not centrist and she's not moderate. Because if that's your definition of moderate, I hate to see what you, what a far left wing extremist would look like. Anyway, oh, I love this line: "What screwed America and saved France?" In America, according to the nonprofit organization Media Matters, I'll bet you that's a good, solid, neutral organization that puts out really good, you know, journalistically um, balanced work. Uh, you know what? I'm this kind of stuff just lights my head on fire, and the people wonder why. We walk around saying that the media just isn't worth listening to anymore. And it's one of the great problems we have. I had lunch with a friend of mine today, and he was telling me, he was telling me, he said, you know what? The biggest problem we have in Canada is we do not have a good, solid platform for the, the right-wing people in this country to answer the nonsense from the left. We don't have a media that is interested that is interested in interesting conversations and looking at things from different points of view in their editorials and covering stories with at least some modicum of fairness we just don't have it like love them or hate them down the states they have fox news okay now i know a lot of people don't like fox and frankly i don't care at least there's some place to go to get an alternative point of view they've got a whole bevy of right-wing talk show hosts down there Okay, you've got Limbaugh, you've got Shapiro, you've got Hannity, you've got um, Beck, you've got all these different people. Now, to be to be uh, make sure we keep this in context, there has to be a platform for these people to use. Like Rush Limbaugh has 625 radio stations in his network. He's the biggest talk show host in the world. But if that those radio stations weren't willing to carry his show, 
or at least open-minded enough to allow his show to air on their station, no matter what their political affiliation is. Because you can't tell me all 625 radio stations he's part of uh, are all right-wing radio stations. You know, they have a much more common-sense business approach to things like that because they know he'll make them a lot of money. He's good for business. And he's also right a lot. So the point is, we don't have that in Canada. Yes, we have Rebel. But compared to the overwhelming tidal wave of stuff that comes out of places like CBC and... (coughs) Excuse me. CTV and... and, um, you know, all the from the Globe and Mail and from the Ottawa citizen, the different citizens and the different stars and all that stuff. Uh, it's hard to find a good, solid conservative publication. Even the National Post isn't as solid as it really should be. There's just is a, it's very difficult to find a place where right wing views can be expressed and not mocked. At least listened to. The, I think as somebody who who uh, spends a lot of time talking politics and talking with friends, whether it's over the over the internet like this or previously over the over the radio or in my own private life, I don't expect everybody to to be convinced by my arguments. Okay, but I do expect them to at least listen. I do expect them to at least give me enough latitude to explain myself, and if when I'm done. They say, well, I see where you're coming from, but I just don't agree with you. All right. Well, at least I can live with that. Okay. I can say, okay, well, because we've had a chance. They've had their say. I've had my say. We've had a great conversation. And that's kind of where it ends. I don't get all benefit. But when somebody says, you're a hater. You're a, you're a, you're a, you're a missionist. You're a, you're a Islamophobe. Just because I might say something. You know what? Sharia law is a blood cult. It has no place in Canada. Now, I think that's a completely rational and reasonable thing to say. But you'd be surprised. No, maybe you wouldn't. But a lot of people out there would be surprised at how virulent the attack can be when you stand up and speak the obvious. Because it shakes their whole worldview. So, anyway, that kind of stuff is just, it's enough to make you just go crazy. Okay. Now, there's a story on CBC about how we need more uh, consumer. Uh, well, the headline is this. Canadians can have better consumer protections. We just need to get angry. And it's uh, put out by a guy called Neil McDonald. He's an um, opinion columnist, they call him. Anyway, he's saying that in the article he talks about how there's not enough uh, protection for Canadian consumers and that uh, there's all kinds of lobbyists who want to keep things you know, expensive, and they don't want a lot of competition. My answer to that is simply make it easier for people to start their own businesses and compete. Because when you can vote with your wallet, if you whether it's an airline, an insurance company, um, you know, a mom-and-pop grocery store, a gas station, a savings and loan, or, you know, uh, whatever it is, whatever it, whatever it is, when you have an oversupply of opportunities to choose from, the only way that the the people who are going to survive in the business world will survive is by offering you a better product at a good price than his competition does. That's how business works. 
So the answer to this is we don't need any more regulation. As a matter of fact, reducing regulation would probably be a good idea so that people who have a bit of an entrepreneurial flair can go out and risk their own money and their own energy and their own time to try to make a better life for themselves and their families and provide for you a service or a product that you want at a price you're willing to pay. We don't need any more laws. We don't need any more protections because every time somebody brings a new organization into existence to protect us, it turns into a polyheaded monster where you cut one head off and two grow back. As my son would say, the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the ever-expanding bureaucracy. That's exactly what happens. So I... I get this guy's point. If you want to read the article, it's it's a long one. I'm not going to get into it reading it here in the air, but um, uh, it's on my Facebook page. You can go and have a look at it there, or you can dig it up on CBC News yourself. But, man, I'm telling you, it's just it's frustrating because it's the answer. And I don't know. Am I getting it wrong? Am I just being too simplistic? I don't think so because, you know, sometimes – uh, I think what Mike said tonight, uh, sometimes the simple isn't always the best answer. Eh, he's right. But sometimes, the mo- most times, the most complicated isn't the right answer either. Somewhere in the middle, there's got to be a happy medium that will make, make things work a lot better than they do now. So I'm not for removing every regulation. I think there's some good ones out there. You know, child labor laws is an example. I don't want nine-year-olds working in sweatshops. Okay, things like that. Uh, I think reasonable uh, environmental laws are probably a good idea too. But the point is, when you have things like uh, the College of the Trades, which are all about maintaining union memberships and have nothing to do with providing skilled workers to the workforce, scrap that. There's all kinds of different things you you could get rid of if you wanted to and made an actual difference. All right. I think it's time to take a little break, catch my breath, and we shall play another commercial right about... Now, but first, I got to play Where Did You Go? That one. General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together.
All right, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. You can reach me at nick at night at latenightcouncil.com. You can send me a note over on Facebook. Whatever is available available to you that you want to use, you can certainly communicate with me. I really like phone calls. Phone calls are cool. Yep, they are. They're a lot of fun. All right, just remember, I don't bite hard. And I don't even bite that often. So you get a chance to state your case, and you walk away uninjured. Isn't that cool? How many talk show talk shows can make that promise? All right. Now, before I dive back into another topic, I want to—I did something tonight, and I—I I do it once in a while. I like to post what I call inspiring quotes. Um, and here's one for you that I really like. There's two, actually, I'll share with you. First of all, this is by Ernest Hemingway. It says, There's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior superior to your former self. Boy, is that a mouthful. I just, you know what? That kind of stuff. And there was a great conversation spawned by that uh, on Facebook. A lot of people just dug into that and really tore it apart, which is what I, part of the reason I posted them in the first place. I want people to think about this stuff. There's a line somewhere I, said, I, I read in a book one time that said something about... Uh, think on things that are noble. Think on things that are you know, uplifting and, and uh, you know, help improve yourself. And by that I mean, you know, give you, make your, elevate your mind from the every everyday uh, nauseam and the garbage that goes on, and spend more time thinking about things that make society better, and try to make yourself a better human being by dwelling on things that are of substance. And this does that. That particular quote. I'll read it one more time. There's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. Boy, is that a mouthful. Now, the other one I like, because it's so true, comes from a, from a 17th century philosopher. And I've got a book of his at home, and I'm, I, I haven't cracked it yet, but I've looked at some of the quotes um, that he's got, and I'm going to have to get into that because this, this guy is obviously quite, quite the uh, philosopher. But he says this. In one of his quotes, he says, the people never give up their liberties, but under some delusion. In other words, they got to be lied to. Now, I want you to take that for a minute and transplant that into today's world. How many times are we told, you know, yeah, it's an impingement on your freedom, but it's for the greater good. Yeah, look, we know that you want a big car that you feel safe and comfortable in, but you're killing the planet, man. You don't need that car. You know what I've never understood? In our culture, what difference does it make whether you need something or want or not? If you can afford it, if it isn't going to bankrupt your family, if it isn't going to lead you into moral decay, why shouldn't you have it? If you can afford it and it's not going to cause you any problems in other areas of your life, why should you not go out and buy that? Whatever it is, a yacht, a fancy car, maybe a riding lawnmower for all I know. I don't know. Just whatever. If you if it's your heart's desire that you've always wanted one and it's what you've worked for, who is anybody else to come along and tell you you shouldn't have that because X, Y, Z? It's none of their business. See, we call stuff like that private property for a reason. Because you don't have to justify it to anybody. If you pay for, you know, you, you go through the, the process of buying whatever, let's say it's a new car, okay? It doesn't have to be a fancy one, but just one you've always, maybe you just need or want 
to have a second car. It would make your life infinitely easier. And so let's say you go buy a little convertible just because you've always wanted one. Who is it? Who, who am I or anybody else to come along and say, boy, you don't care about the planet, do you? Got to shut that thing off. You really shouldn't drive that. You know, oh, it's just terrible feeding all them trees. None of their business. So that, in other words, in order to make that happen, in order for you to, to convince you to surrender more of your liberty, you have to be lied to. Because if they told you what was really behind it, you wouldn't do it. See, people don't act in, in, area, in ways that are against their own self-interest. You know, when I was having lunch with my friend, he also brought up another point, And he said, you know, too many times, and he, he said, I hear it all the time. Take the, the pot smoking situation. He'll say, well, what do you, what's the big deal? It's legal, you know, or it's going to be legal. Well, you know what? That's not even the right question. Because there's plenty of things that are legal that are not moral, that are not right. You see, we're raising our kids wrong. And I'm being very gentle in my application. There's millions of people who don't fit this. But as a society, I think that we're, we're teaching our kids to obey the law, not because it's the right thing to do, but because of the consequences of getting caught. Like, Why do we need a speed limit that says 60 miles an hour on the highway? That's it. Because we don't raise our kids to be responsible when they're behind the wheel. If they taught them to drive responsibly, what need would we have for speed limits? Well, you never know. You, you, you just can't have people running willy-nilly. Well, they're not if they're behaving responsibly. Now, I get it in a society that, you know, you're never going to have everybody behaving responsibly. And I'm not saying we don't need laws. I'm just saying that in order to remove your freedoms from you, uh, they have to lie to you. And we have a, a culture now that is so legalistic that we've lost the fact that something more important than legal is the question, is this the right thing to do? And I think that's a far more important question. Is forcing our kids to go to um, schools that are secular in nature, if you don't want to, or pay for schools that are secular in nature, you know, to learn what the government deems worth learning, is that right? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But that's not, that's not the way every child has to be educated. Now, a lot of people would say, absolutely, of course that makes sense. We don't want an illiterate society. Well, no, I don't want one either. But you see, the vast majority of parents would make sure that their children aren't illiterate in the first place. So I, don't, I'm, I'm just, I might even be picking a wrong, the, a wrong example. But the bottom line is, we have drifted away from the idea of what is, is this something that is right to do or wrong to do versus is it legal or is it illegal? If it's legal, we can do it. And they never ask the next question. Yeah, but is it the right thing to do just because it's legal? And I think we get into all kinds of trouble and have all kinds of hassles with that question. All right, now, let's go back to Patrick Brown for a minute, because I want to ask you a question. Is there anybody out there still believes this guy? 
Because I tell you what, I have almost... Well, I'll be honest. He's wearing the wrong color tie. He's a liberal that just happens to be running the Tory party. I don't like it, but I don't think there's any arguing about it anymore. Um, it's beyond that now. But he's made us a promise. Oh, we know how solid that'll be. But let me share this with you. This is out of the Sun today. Yesterday, sorry. Ontario's progressive conservative leader says passing ethics and accountability legislation will be one of the very first things his government will do if his party wins the 2018 election. Patrick announced an eight-point plan Tuesday that takes direct aim at some of the liberal scandals from their 14 years in government. His plan would be to make it illegal for cabinet ministers to have targets for how much money they are expected to raise for their party and would prevent them from calling stakeholders who do business with the government to solicit donations. Both of these issues were at play in the liberal so-called cash-for-access fundraising scandal last year, which the government ministers were accused of holding private events with stakeholders to raise money for their party. It goes on, but the question becomes, yeah, okay, We've heard promises out of this guy before. What makes him think we're going to believe him this time? Do you believe him? Frankly, if he told me what time it is, I'd have to walk, I'd have to go and get a, a second opinion. If he told me it was sunny and warm outside, I'd have to grab a coat and an umbrella just to make sure and go outside and check for myself. I don't trust him. He's broken faith with us too often. There's nothing about this man that I have uh, any confidence in. And quite frankly, I'm a little bit tired of of him standing up on a podium preaching to us about, you know, what's right and what's wrong when he has no intention, at least certainly based on his past performance, doesn't seem to care what the people he's making promises to think after he has their support because he'll just break the promise anyway. So I, I frankly, I have no interest in anything he has to say. I just found it interesting that uh, <clears throat> that they're going after. He's he's standing up and saying this stuff. On one hand, okay, it makes sense. You know, I can see why he would say that. But on the other hand, I don't believe him because I don't see any difference between him and Kathleen Wynne. I just I just don't. There's there's nothing substantive dif- substantively different between him and Kathleen Wynne, and I don't know what else to. You know, how else to to lay that out? Uh, The whole thing has become just utter nonsense uh, when it comes to that. Because if you can't, if you can't, you can only be lied to so many times. When after that, it doesn't matter what you say. Nobody's going to believe you. So for him to stand up there and start talking about ethics commissioners. Are you kidding me? The way he's running the party right now? He needs an ethics commissioner. If he imposed it on himself, I wouldn't believe it. Anyway, all right. Let's take us another little break. When we come back, we'll have more right after this.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Okay, let me broach something on the international stage here. I don't know if you've been following with all the chaos that's reigned in, in this, uh, pardon the pun, um, that has been going on in um, our corner of the world with all the floods and all that stuff. Uh, oh, I should tell you that uh, out, out our way, there's a uh, park called, uh, it's a little trailer park where people can go and they can rent cottages or they can park trailers and so on called the Covered, Covered Bridge Park. And uh, we were out there a few, oh, eight or ten days ago when the whole flooding first started, and spent a few days, spent a few hours out there doing some sandbagging, trying to help that family, you know, protect their property and and uh, keep their um, uh, home from being swept away. Well, uh, this week, of course, the water came up again and very nearly swept away everything that he'd done, uh, but it looks like everything stabilized. So. Now, as long as we don't get any more rain, everything should be fine and things will continue. But that's just a little update on that story because it was uh, um, uh, the community really did, just like in Ottawa, the community really did come together. You know, the one thing about uh, the rural situation, which was a little different than the city situation, because the flood in the city was concentrated along the river, it wasn't across the city as a whole, um, there were plenty of hands uh, to go out and do whatever it took to fight the flood. And uh, I think that it was, um, you know, to the city's credit to do that. But out in the rural areas, because there were so many people on waterfronts, um, you know, people have cottages and homes along lakes and rivers and so on. And it's a beautiful lifestyle, no doubt about it, but it comes at a risk. Anyway, when the, flood, when the flooding first started, the impact on the number of homes was relatively small. So there were a fair amount of people to come out and give assistance. But as the water came up, and their homes began to be threatened. The work, the amount of work went up, but the number of hands available went down because all those people were busy trying to keep their places from flooding. So it was a little bit different um, situation there compared to uh, what was going on uh, in the city. And it's uh, that's neither good nor bad. It's just the way it was. Uh, okay, now, uh, we have a problem with this guy, this um, this little fat boy, Kim, um, who runs this uh, third world backwards country called uh, North Korea. 
Um, I was reading somewhere that the leader of South Korea is willing to go north and talk to the North Koreans, which I think is a noble gesture, but a vain one. I don't think that this little this little this little boy is going to listen. I think he's just going to use it for propaganda purposes, and he is doing everything he can to start a war between the United States and him. Uh, anyway, what the the Chinese have been making moves first, they put. 150,000 troops along the North Korean border. Um, and they were teaching them Korean phrases like, don't move, uh, stop, or I'll shoot. In other words, they were going to make sure that in the case of hostilities, uh, the North Korean people who would instantly become refugees are not going to flood into China. They didn't want them, and they made that very plain. Now they've moved a whole bunch of anti-shipping missiles um, into the region, and it does kind of make me scratch my head, like, why would they do it? So anyway, here's a little piece of that story. Sino-U.S. tensions over disputed territory in the South China Sea, along with saber-rattling for North Korea, which is mostly backed by China, have seen tensions in the region rise dramatically. The situation has also been inflamed by President Donald Trump sending the aircraft carrier Carl Vinson, along with an armada of warships, to the region to undergo military drills in the area. Images of the Yulin Naval Base located on Hainan Island off the hotly disputed islands of South China, China, close to Vietnam, now appear to show Beijing has stockpiled a range of land-based missile launchers that have the capability of reaching and knocking out U.S. military vessels. It would take quite a missile to knock out the Carl Vinson, but uh, they do exist. There's no doubt about it. Anyway, so I just kind of scratch my head over this. Like, why? Uh, I, I was thinking, and this shows you how much I know about this kind of stuff, but it seemed to me that the moves by the Americans were meant to show the little maniac up in North Korea that, you know, be careful what you ask for, son, because you just might get it. And China was responding in kind by saying to uh, Pyongyang, uh, you know, if you get so foolish as to, as to start a war with the West, uh, don't look at her for help from us. But now it seems they're taking advantage of the situation and uh, putting these anti-ship missiles in a position where they could go after the U.S. fleet. And if that happens, all bets are off. So I thought I would bring that to your attention, but, man, I don't like that. That that does make me nervous because, let's face it, the Chinese are not the North Koreans. They may not be as, as techno technologically advanced as the Western militaries are, but they have come a long way in the last number of years. Uh, I think it's... it's um, troubling, to put it mildly. So when you when you see this kind of stuff, there's no way to know what's going to happen. And I don't pretend to have any kind of crystal ball about, um, you know, these kind of things. It just, you don't want to see them happen. Like, nobody wants to see a war, um, especially one involv involving a, um, involving a, um, a rogue nation like North Korea, because once that starts, who knows where it's going to go. All right, now another story that's in the news here, this Senator Don Meredith. Um, what is it with people? Now, look, I understand. <laughs> See, this is where, I, I, I don't know how to explain this. And this is the story of a Canadian senator by the name of Don Meredith who resigned his seat in the Senate because he was about to get booted out. Why? 
because he had sexual sexual relationships with a 16-year-old. Now, the man, I, I don't know how old he is, but I'm guessing he's in his 50s. The whole idea just, to me, is repugnant. The, the girl is young enough to be his daughter. And if he's old enough, it, it doesn't, I don't think it gives his age in the story. Oh, he's 52. Okay, so he's um, a 50-year-old. Oh, he's a 52-year-old married Pentecostal minister, which makes it even better, right? Um, so he's 52 messing around with a 16-year-old. Where do you have to where does your head have to be? Now, look, I get it that 16-year-olds today don't look like they did when I was in high school. But how does that see when you are in a position of authority, you are you are expected to behave at a higher standard. Now, I'm glad he decided to, to resign and he didn't have to go through the actual um the actual um process booting him out. But you know the other question? Why isn't he charged with pedophilia? She's under the age of consent. He certainly... Oh, wait a minute now. She might not be. She should be. Uh, let's see. Just trying to find the part in the story that talks about when it all started. Uh, let's see. Oh, I can't find it. It doesn't matter. But the point is, it's it, this is a case. Okay, here's a classic case. Remember I was talking about just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right? This is a classic case. Let's say for a second that the age of majority for um, for children, uh, when it comes to who they, you know, who they can sleep with and all that stuff, who they can have sex with, uh, is 16. Now, there's a caveat to that law. I'm, I, I still think it's illegal. But even if it isn't, it's certainly immoral. It's certainly wrong. It, it's it's like sleeping with a, a child. It, it, well, it is. So I'm glad to see that he get bounced. Absolutely glad to see that he get bounced because that kind of nonsense I don't have any time for. All right. Time to take a quick break, and we'll come back and wrap the show up. You just stay right there. We'll be right back with more.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Now, let me share with you, you know something? This story demonstrates the vanity, childishness, and arrogance of our present boy king, Prime Minister Trudeau, and the people that support him. If you haven't heard this story, it's by Anthony Fury today in The Sun, the Toronto Sun, actually. Life-size cutouts of Justin are all the rage these days, and no, we're not talking about Bieber. On Tuesday, it was revealed that the federal government spent $1,877.24 of taxpayer dollars on 14 celebrity-style cardboard cutouts of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The cutouts were ordered by Global Affairs Canada and placed at Canadian missions around the world. So let me stop there for a moment. Who do you think said we need to do that. Imagine you're in a mission in, oh, I don't know, let's say Australia. Okay, Canadian mission in Australia. You walk in, and here's a cardboard cutout of the Prime Minister waving that plastic look on his face. Hi, welcome to my mission. How, how absolutely tacky is that? Is there any any other leader? Even look, Donald Trump wouldn't do that. Um, you know, uh, the leader Prime Minister May from Britain wouldn't do that. I don't think An- Angela Merkel would do that. How utterly tasteless! These things cost us two grand for fourteen of them. Two grand. Anyway, the cutouts were ordered by. Oh yeah, we did that. While Canadians got, uh, while Canadians first got wind of the memorabilia item, usually reserved for film celebs and rock stars, back in March, the cost has only just come to light after the department responded to an inquiry, inquiry submitted by the Conservatives. Now, look, folks. Excuse me. There's no doubt in my mind that two thousand dollars in a budget that's in the, you know, tens of billions of dollars. I mean, they spend more on sharpening pencils up there than they do on posters. It's not the amount of money that's the problem. It's what it was spent on. Cheesy, tacky, cardboard cutouts of a... You know what? Maybe that's not such a bad idea at all. Maybe those cardboard cutouts aren't the thing that are cheesy and tacky and flat and shallow with no substance. 
Maybe they're just a representation of the individual pictured on them. How cheesy and tacky and flat and shallow and without substance he is. Maybe demonstrating that to the world might not be such a bad idea. Maybe, maybe it'll show the world this kid is not worth taking seriously. Maybe there's a silver line to this. I'm being a little facetious, but I mean, you might as well laugh as cry, right? This this kind of stuff just, good Lord. It's one of these things where it's like when your kid walks in, right, and it's got body, they've got body piercings or they've got tattoos, and you go, oh, well, that looks great. And then they tell you how much it costs to get it done. And your jaw drops. You spend how much? Anyway, the opposition isn't buying the spin. The minister's response is, oh, yeah. First, I should <laughs> I should read the paragraph before for you to understand that one. Missions have been asked to no longer use these items for their events, says the inquiry response, signed by a foreign affairs minister, Christia, Christ, Christia Freeland. Nonetheless, under our under our government, Canada is re-engaging with the world champion to champion the values that Canadians hold dear and advance our interests. So our Canadian values are flat, cheesy, tacky, without substance. <laughs> oh, man, you couldn't make this stuff up. And, of course, the opposition isn't buying it. The, minister response, the minister's response is laughable. Conservative MP John Brassard, who serves as, de- as the deputy ethics critic, said, uh, on, to, uh, told The Sun in a phone interview, I don't think anyone is going to buy the idea that two-dimensional cutouts somehow champion our values. It's a vanity project. Absolutely right it is. It's one of the most... Oh, my God. You know what I... W- now, the people who did this absolutely fawn over them. The bureaucrats... They love him. They chased him out of these missions, and they're gathered around him and giving him high fives and you the man and taking five. What is the matter with people? There's a certain amount of professionalism that's supposed to come with your job. You're not supposed to be like a drooling little kid over an ice cream cone when the prime minister walks in. There's a certain amount of decorum, but oh, no. The cost of bureaucrats swooning should come as no... should come should come as no surprise. Uh, Justin Trudeau was joyfully mobbed by several sev- by federal civil servants. The PM showed up at a foreign affairs department head office, and well, let's have the state broadcaster tell the story as they're much better at gushing over the PM. So these are the words of CBC. Trudeau appeared and began to make his way out of the building. He was swarmed. Many took photos and even selfies along the way. The prime minister was hugged. Cheers erupted. He smiled and waved and stopped by the door. He thanked the crowd for supporting the members of his cabinet who had just left. Then he continued, we're going to need every single one of you to give us, as you always do, your absolute best. They applauded and cheered. Some more. Some yelled back, you've got it. Now these would be the very same cohort of bureaucrats who saw fit to order cutouts. Of their, uh, now these would be the same bureaucrats who ordered these stupid cutouts in the first place at about a hundred bucks a piece. I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up, folks. You just can't. All right. Well, that wraps it up again tonight, folks. I've had a great time. I certainly hope you enjoyed the interview with Mike Patton, my guest. Thank you very much, Mike, for coming in and being with us. I certainly appreciate that. Um, 
And then guess that just wraps it up for me. So I'll bag it and we'll sign off saying Ubi Caritas et Amor. Dea CBS. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Of all the money that I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can recall. So And drink a health whate'er befalls Then gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to you all Of all the comrades that it I had They're sorry for my going and all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me one more day to stay But since it fell into my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to Let's see.